from Los Angeles, California, the entertainment capital of the world, it's the 80s movie podcast. I am your host, Edward Havens, and thank you for listening today. The Marvel Cinematic Universe is the undisputed king of intellectual property in the entertainment industry. As of February 9th, 2023, the day I record this episode, there have been 30 full-length motion pictures part of the MCU in the past 15 years, with a combined global ticket sales of $28 billion, as well as 20 television shows that have been seen by hundreds of millions of people worldwide. It's an entertainment juggernaut that does not appear to be going away anytime soon. This comes as a total shock to many of us who grew up in the 1970s and 1980s who were witness to cheaply produced television shows featuring hokey special effects and a roster of has-beens and never-wers in the cast. Superman was the king of superheroes at the movies in large part because, believe it or not, there had not been a movie based on a Marvel Comics character released into theaters until the summer of 1986. But not for lack of trying. And that's what we're going to go and talk about today. A brief history of the Marvel Cinematic Universe that could have been in the 1980s. But first, as always, some backstory. Now, I'm not approaching this as a comics fan. When I was growing up in the 80s, I collected comics, but my collection was limited to Marvel's Star Wars series, Marvel's Rom the Space Knight, and Marvel's two-issue Blade Runner comic adaptation in 1982. So, I apologize to Marvel comic fans if I relay some of this information incorrectly. I have tried to do my best when it comes to my research. Marvel Comics got its start as Timely Comics back in 1939. On August 31st of that year, Timely would release its first comic, titled Marvel Comics, which would feature a number of short stories featuring versions of characters that would become long-running staples in the eventual publishing house that would bear the comic's name, including the Angel, a version of the Human Torch, which was actually an android hero, and Namor the Submariner, who was originally created for an unpublished comic that was supposed to be given away to kids when they attended their local movie theater during a Saturday matinee. That comic issue would quickly sell out its initial 80,000 print run, as well as its second run, which would put another 800,000 copies out in the marketplace. The Vision would also become another character introduced on the pages of Marvel Comics in November of 1940. In December 1940, Timely would introduce their next big character, Captain America, who would find instant success thanks to a front cover depicting Cap punching Adolf Hitler square in the jaw, proving that Americans have loved seeing Nazis get punched in the face even a year before our country entered the World War II conflict. But there would be other popular characters created during this time frame, including Black Widow, the Falcon, and the Invisible Man. In 1941, Timely Comics would lose two of its best collaborators, artists Joe Simon and Jack Kirby, to rival company Detective Comics, and Timely owner Martin Goodman would promote one of his cousins, by marriage to his wife Jean, no less, to become the interim editor of Timely Comics, a 19-year-old kid named Stanley Lieber, who would shorten his name later to Stan Lee. In 1951, Timely Comics would be rebranded as Atlas Comics, and would expand past superhero titles to include tales of crime, drama, espionage, horror, science fiction, war, western, and even romance comics. Eventually, in 1961, Atlas Comics would rebrand once again as Marvel Comics and would find great success by changing the focus of their stories from being aimed towards younger readers and towards a more sophisticated audience. 
It would be in November of 1961 when Marvel would introduce their first superhero team, the Fantastic Four, as well as a number of their most beloved characters, including Black Panther, Carol Danvers, Iron Man, the Scarlet Witch, Spider-Man, and Thor, as well as Professor X and many of the X-Men. And, as would be expected, Hollywood would come knocking. Warner Brothers would be in the best position to make comic book movies as both they and DC Comics were owned by the same company beginning in 1969. But for Marvel, they would not be able to enjoy that kind of symbiotic relationship. Regularly strapped for cash, Stan Lee would often sell movie and television rights to a variety of Marvel characters to whomever came calling. First, Marvel would team with a variety of producers to create a series of animated television shows, starting with the Marvel Superheroes in 1966, two different series based on the Fantastic Four, and both Spider-Man and Spider-Woman series. But movies were a different matter. The rights to make a Spider-Man television show, for example, were sold off to a production company called Dan Chuck, who teamed with CBS Television to start airing the show in September of 1977. But Dan Chuck was able to find a loophole in their contract that allowed them to release the two-hour pilot episode as a movie outside of the United States, which complicated the movie rights Marvel had already sold to another company. Because the quote-unquote movie was a success around the world, CBS and Dan Chuck would release two more Spider-Man quote-unquote movies in 1978 and 1981. Eventually, the company that owned the Spider-Man movie rights would sell them to another company in the early 1980s, the legendary independent B-movie production company and distributor New World Pictures, founded and operated by the legendary independent B-movie producer and director Roger Corman. But shortly after Corman acquired the film rights of Spider-Man, he went and almost immediately sold them to another legendary independent B-movie production company and distributor, Canon Films. Side note, Shortly after Corman sold the movie rights of Spider-Man to Canon, Marvel Entertainment was sold to the company that also owned New World Pictures, although Corman himself had nothing to do with the deal itself. The owners of New World were hoping to merge the Marvel comic book characters with the studio's television and motion picture department to create a sort of shared universe. But since so many of the better-known characters like Spider-Man and Captain America had their movie and television rights sold off to competition, it didn't seem like that was going to happen anytime soon. But, again, I'm getting ahead of myself. So, for now, we're going to settle on May 1st, 1985. Canon Films, who loved to spend money to make money, made a big statement in the pages of the industry trade publication Variety when they bought nine full pages of advertising in the con market preview issue to announce that buyers around the world needed to get ready, because he was coming. Spider-Man. A live-action motion picture event to be directed by Toby Hooper, whose last movie, Poltergeist, reignited his directing career. And Spider-Man would be arriving in theaters, they said, for Christmas 1986. Cannon had made a name for themselves, making cheapy teen comedies in their native Israel in the 1970s, and then brought that formula to America with films like The Last American Virgin, a remake of the first Lemon Popsicle movie that had made them a success back home. Cannon would swerve into cheapy action movies with fallen stars like Lee Marvin and Charles Bronson, and would prop up a new action star in Chuck Norris, as well as the cheapy, trend-chasing movies like Breakin' and Breakin' 2, Electric Boogaloo. They'd seen enough success in America where they could start spending even bigger, 
and Spider-Man was supposed to be their first big splash into the superhero movie genre. With that, they would hire Leslie Stevens, the creator of the cult TV series The Outer Limits, to write the screenplay. There was just one small problem. Neither Stevens nor Cannon had Honcho Menachem Goland understood the Spider-Man character. Golan thought Spider-Man was a half-spider, half-man creature, not unlike the Wolfman, and instructed Stevens to follow that concept. Stevens' script would not really borrow from any of the comic's 20-plus-year history. Peter Parker, who in this story is a 20-something ID photographer for a corporation that probably would have been Oscorp if it were written by anyone else who had at least some familiarity with the comics, who becomes intentionally bombarded with gamma radiation by one of the scientists in one of the laboratories by turning Bruce Banner, I mean mean Peter Parker, into a hairy eight-armed, yes, eight-armed, hybrid human spider monster. At first suicidal, Bruce, I, I mean Peter, refuses to join forces with the scientists' other master race of mutants, forcing Peter to do battle with these other mutants in a basement lab to the death. To say Stan Lee hated it would be an understatement. Lee schooled Golan and Golan's partner at Canon, his cousin Jorn Globus, on what Spider-Man was supposed to be and demanded a new screenplay. Wanting to keep the head of Marvel Comics happy because they had big plans not only for Spider-Man but for a number of other Marvel characters, they would hire the screenwriting team of Ted Newsom and John Prancado, who had written a screenplay adaptation for Lee of Sergeant Fury and his Howling Commandos, to come up with a new script for Spider-Man. Newsom and Brancato would write an origin story, featuring a teenage Peter Parker who must deal with his newfound powers, while trying to maintain a regular high school existence, while going up against an evil scientist, Otto Octavius. But we'll come back to that later. In the same May 1985 issue of Variety, amongst dozen of pages of ads for movies both completed and in development, including three other movies from Toby Hooper, was a one-page ad for Captain America. No director or actor was attached to the project yet, but comic book writer James L. Silk, who had written the script for four other canon movies in the previous two years, was listed as a screenwriter. By October of 1985, Canon was again trying to pre-sell foreign rights to make a Spider-Man movie, this time at the MyFed Film Market in Milan, Italy. Gone were Leslie Stevens and Toby Hooper, Newsom and Brancato were the new credited writers, and Joseph Tito, the director of the Chuck Norris canon movie Missing in Action and Invasion USA, was the new director. In a two-page ad for Captain America, the film would acquire a new director and Michael Winner, the director of the first three Death Wish movies. And this pattern would continue every few months, from Khan to MyFed to the American film market and back to Khan. A new writer would be attached, a new director a new release date. By October of 1987, after the twin failures of Superman IV The Quest for Peace and Masters of the Universe, Cannon had all but given up on a Captain America movie and downshifted the budget on their proposed Spider-Man movie. Albert Pyun, whose ability to make any movie in any genre look far better than its budget should have allowed, was brought in to be the director of Spider-Man from a new script written by Shepard Goldman. Who? Shepard Goldman whose one and only credit on any motion picture was one of three writers of the 1988 canon movie Salsa. You don't remember Salsa? That's okay. Neither does anyone else. But 
We'll talk a lot more about Canon films down the road because there's a lot to talk about when it comes to Canon films. Although I will leave you with two related tidbits. Do you remember the 1989 Jean-Claude Van Damme movie Cyborg? Post-apocalyptic cyberpunk martial art action film where JCVD and everyone else in the movie has names like Gibson Rickenbacker, Fender Tremolo, Marshall Strat, and Pearl Prophet for no damn good reason? It's a stupid movie, but it's a lot of fun. Anyway, Albert Pion was supposed to shoot two movies back-to-back for canon in 1988, a sequel to Masters of the Universe and Spider-Man. To save money, both movies would use many of the same sets and costumes, and Canon had spent more than $2 million building the sets and making those costumes at the old Dano De Laurentiis Studios in Wilmington, North Carolina, where David Lynch had shot Blue Velvet. But then Canon ran into some cash flow issues and lost the rights to both the He-Man toy line from Mattel and the Spider-Man characters they had licensed from Marvel. But ever the astute businessman, Canon Films' chairman, Menachem Golan, offered Pion half a million dollars to shoot any movie he wanted, using those costumes and sets already created and paid for, provided Pion could come up with a movie idea in a week. Pion wrote the script to Cyborg in five days, and outside of some on-set alterations, that first draft would be the shooting script. Cyborg would open in theaters in April of 1989 and gross more than $10 million in the United States alone. A few months later, Golan would be gone from Canon Films, and as part of his severance package, he would take one of the company's acquisitions, 21st Century Films, with him, as well as several projects, including Captain America. Albert Pion never got to make his Spider-Man movie, but he would go into production on his Captain America in August of 1989. But since the movie didn't get released in any form until it came out direct-to-video and cable in 1992, I'll leave it to podcasts devoted to 90s movies to tell you more about it. I've seen it. It's super easy to find on YouTube. And it really sucks, although not as bad as the 1994 version of the Fantastic Four that still hasn't been officially released nearly 30 years later. There would also be attempts throughout the decade to make movies from the aforementioned Fantastic Four, the X-Men, Daredevil, The Incredible Hulk, Silver Surfer, and Iron Man, from companies like New Line, 20th Century Fox, and Universal. But none of those would ever come to fruition in the 1980s. But the one that would stick? Of the more than 1,000 characters that had been featured in the pages of Marvel Comics over the course of 40 years, the one that would become the star of the first ever theatrically released motion picture based on a Marvel character? Howard the Duck. Howard the Duck was not your average Marvel superhero. Howard the Duck wasn't even a superhero. He was just some wisecracking, ill-tempered, anthropomorphic waterfowl that had been abducted away from his home on Duck World and forced against his will to live with humans on Earth. Or, more specifically, first with the dirty humans of the Florida Everglades, and then Cleveland, and finally New York City. Howard the Duck was metafiction and existentialist when neither of those things were in the zeitgeist. He smoked cigars, wore a suit and tie, and enjoyed drinking a variety of libations and getting it on with the women, mostly his sometime girlfriend, Beverly. The perfect character to be the subject of the very first Marvel movie. A PG-rated movie. Enter George Lucas. In 1973, George Lucas had hit it big with his second film as a director, American Graffiti. Lucas had written the screenplay based in part on his life as an 18-year-old car enthusiast about to graduate high school, 
With the help of a friend from his days at USC Film School, Willard Hyuk, and Hyuk's wife, Gloria Katz, Lucas wanted to show his appreciation for their help by producing a movie for them. Although there are variations to the story of how this came about, most sources say it was Hyuk who would tell Lucas about this new comic book character, Howard the Duck, who piqued his classmates' interest by describing the comic as having elements of film noir and absurdism. Because Universal dragged their feet on American Graffiti, not promoting it as well as they could have upon its initial release, and only embracing the film when the public embraced its retro soundtrack, Lucas was not too keen on working with Universal again on his next project, a sci-fi movie he was calling The Journal of the Wills. And while they say they saw some potential in what they considered to be some minor kiddie movie, the executives at Universal didn't think Lucas could pull it off the way he was describing it for the budget he was asking for. What else you got, kid? they had asked. Lucas had Hyuk and Katz and an idea for a live-action comic book movie about a talking duck. Surprisingly, Universal did not slam the door shut in Lucas's face. They actually went for the idea and worked with Lucas, Stan Lee of Marvel Comics, and Howard's creator, Steve Gerber, to put together a deal to make it happen. And almost right away, Gerber and the screenwriters, Hyuk and Katz, would butt heads on practically every aspect of the movie's storyline. Katz just thought it was some funny story about a duck from outer space and his wacky adventures on Earth. Gerber was adamant that Howard the Duck was an existential Joe, and the difference between life's most serious moments and its most incredibly dumb moments were only distinguishable by a moment's point of view. Hyuk wanted to make a big special effects movie, while Katz thought it would be fun to set the story in Hawaii so she and her husband could have some fun while shooting there. The writers would spend years on the script, removing most everything that had made Howard the Duck the comic book so enjoyable to its readers. Howard and his story would be played completely straight in the movie, leaning on subtle gags not unlike a Zucker-Abram-Zucker movie, instead of bracing the surreal ridiculousness of the comics. They would write humongous, effects-heavy set pieces, knowing that they would have access to their producer's in-house special effects team, Industrial Light and Magic, instead of the comic's more cerebral endings, and they'd tone down the more risque aspects of Howard's personality, figuring a more family-friendly movie would bring in more money at the box office. It would take nearly 12 years for all of the pieces to fall in place for Howard the Duck to begin filming. But in the spring of 1985, Universal finally gave the green light to Lucas and his team to finally make the first live-action feature film based on a Marvel Comics character. For Beverly, the filmmakers claimed to have looked at every young actress in Hollywood before deciding on 24-year-old Leah Thompson, who after years of supporting roles in movies like Jaws, 3D, All the Right Moves, and Red Dawn, had found success playing Michael J. Fox's mother in Back to the Future. 26-year-old Tim Robbins had only made two movies up to this point, as one of the frat boys in Fraternity Vacation and as one of the fighter pilot trainees in Top Gun, and this would be his first chance to play a leading role in a major motion picture. And Jeffrey Jones would be cast as a bad guy, the Dark Overlord, based upon his work in the 1984 Best Picture winner Amadeus, although he would be coming to the set of Howard the Duck straight off of working on a John Hughes movie, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Howard the Duck would begin shooting on the Universal Studios lot on November 11, 1985, and on the very first day of production, the Duck puppet being used to film 
would have a major mechanical failure, not unlike the mechanical failure of the shark in Jaws that would force Steven Spielberg to become more creative with how he shot that character. George Lucas, who would be a hands-on producer, would suggest that maybe they could shoot other scenes not involving the duck, while his crew at ILM created a fully functional, life-size animatronic duck costume for a little actor to wear on set. At first, the lead actor in the duck suit was a 12-year-old boy, but within days of his start on the film, he would develop a severe case of claustrophobia inside the costume. Ed Gale, originally hired to be the stunt man in the duck costume, would quickly take over the role. Since Gale could work longer hours than Child due to the very restrictive laws surrounding child actors on movie and television sets, this would help keep the movie on a good production schedule and make shooting the questionable love scenes between Howard and Beverly easier for Miss Thompson, who was creeped out at the thought of seducing a preteen for a scene. To keep the shoot on schedule, not only would the filmmakers employ a second shooting unit to shoot scenes not involving the main actors, which is standard operating procedure on most movies, Lucas would supervise a third shooting unit that would shoot Robbins and Gale in one of the film's more climactic moments, when Howard and Phil are trying to escape being captured by the authorities by flying off in an ultralight plane. Most of this sequence would be shot in the town of Petaluma, California, on the same streets where Lucas had shot American Graffiti's iconic cruising scenes 13 years earlier. After a month-long shoot of the film's climax at a naval station in San Francisco, the film would end production on March 26, 1986, leaving the $36 million film barely four months to be put together in order to make its already set-in-stone August 1, 1986 release date. Being used to quick turnaround times, the effects teams working on the film would get all of their shots completed with time to spare not only because they were good at their jobs, but because they had the ability to start work before the film went into production. For the end sequence, where Jones's character has fully transformed into the Dark Overlord, master stop-motion animator Phil Tippett, who had left ILM in 1984 to start his own effects studio specializing in that style of animation, had nearly a year to put together what would ultimately be less than two minutes of actual screen time. As Beverly was a musician, Lucas would hire English musician and composer Thomas Dolby, whose 1982 single She Blinded Me With Science became a global smash hit, to write the songs for Cherry Bomb and the all-girl rock band led by Leah Thompson's Beverly. Playing KC, the keyboardist for Cherry Bomb, Holly Robinson would book her first major acting role. For the music, Dolby would collaborate with Allie Willis, the co-writer of Earth, Wind & Fire's September and Boogie Wonderland, and funk legend George Clinton. But despite this powerhouse musical trio, the songs for the band were not very good, and with all due respect to Leah Thompson, not very well sung. By August of 1986, Universal Studios needed a hit. Despite winning the Academy Award for Best Picture in March with Sidney Pollock's Out of Africa, the first six films they released for the year were all disappointments at the box office and or with the critics. The Best of Times was a comedy featuring Robin Williams and Kurt Russell as two friends who try to create a high school football game, which changed the direction of both their lives. Despite a script written by Ron Shelton, who would be nominated for an Oscar for his next screenplay, Bull Durham, and Robin Williams, the $12 million film would gross less than $8 million. The Money Pit, a comedy with Tom Hanks and Shelley Long, would end up grossing $37 million against a $10 million budget, but the movie was so bad, its first appearance on DVD wouldn't come until 2011, 
and only as a part of a Tom Hanks comedy favorites collection along with The Burbs and Dragnet. Legend, a dark fantasy film directed by Ridley Scott and starring Tom Cruise, was supposed to be one of the big hit films of 1985. But Scott and the studio would fight over the film, with the director wanting them to release a two-hour and five-minute-long version with a classical movie score by Jerry Goldsmith, while the studio eventually cut the film down to an hour and 29 minutes with a techno score by Tangerine Dream. Despite an amazing makeup job transforming Tim Curry into the Lord of Darkness, as well as sumptuous costumes and cinematography, the $24.5 million film would just miss recouping its production budget back in ticket sales. Tom Cruise would become a superstar not a f- six weeks later, when Paramount released Top Gun, directed by Ridley's little brother, Tony Scott. Sweet Liberty should have been a solid performer for the studio. Alan Alda, in his first movie since the end of MASH three years earlier, would write, direct, and star in this comedy about a college history professor who must watch in disbelief as a Hollywood production company comes to his small town to film the movie version of one of his books. Sweet Liberty, which also starred Michael Caine, Bob Hoskins, Michelle Pfeiffer, and screen legend Lillian Gish, would get lost in the shuffle of other comedies that were already playing theaters, like Ferris Bueller and Short Circuit. Legal Eagles was supposed to be the movie to beat for the summer of 1986, at least on paper. Ivan Reitman's follow-up film to Ghostbusters would feature a cast that included Robert Redford, Deborah Winger, and Daryl Hannah, along with Brian Dennehy, Terrence Stamp, and Brian Doyle Murray, and was perhaps too much movie being a legal, romantic, comedy, mystery, crime thriller. If I were to do an episode about agency packaging in the 1980s, the process when a talent agency like Creative Artists Agency, or CAA, puts two or more of their clients together in a project not because it might be the best for the movie, but best for the agency that will collect a 10% commission from each client attached to the project, Legal Eagles would be the example of packaging gone too far. Ivan Reitman was a client of CAA, as was Redford and Winger and Hannah, as was Bill Murray, who was originally cast in the Redford role, as were Jim Cash and Jack Epps, the screenwriters for the film, as was Tom Mankiewicz, the co-writer of Superman and three Bond films, who was brought in to rewrite the script when Murray left and Redford came in, as was Frank Price, the chairman of Universal Pictures when the project was put together. All told, CAA would book more than a million and a half in commissions for themselves for all their clients working on the film. And the film sucked. Despite the fact that it had almost no special effects, Legal Eagles would cost $40 million to produce, one of the most expensive movies ever made to that point, nearly one and a half times the cost of the effects-heavy Ghostbusters. Legal Eagles would gross nearly $50 million in the United States, which would make it only the 14th highest-grossing film of the year. Less than Stand By Me, less than Color of Money, less than Down and Out in America. And then there was Psycho 3, the Anthony Perkins-directed slasher film that brought good old Norman Bates out of the mothballs once again. An almost direct follow-up to Psycho 2 from 1983, the film neither was embraced by horror fans or film critics, and it would only open in eighth place despite the fact that there hadn't been a horror movie in theaters for months, and its $14 million gross would kill off any chance for a Psycho 4 in theaters. In late June, Universal would hold a series of test screenings for Howard the Duck. 
depending on who you talk to, the test screenings either went really well or went so bad that one of the writers would tear up negative response cards before they could be given to the score compilers to goose the numbers up. Pun only somewhat intended. I tend to believe the latter stories. It was fairly well reported at the time that the test screenings went so bad. Sid Scheinberg, the CEO of Universal, and Frank Price, the president of the studio, got into a fistfight in the lobby of one of the theaters running the test screenings over who was to blame for this appending debacle. And a debacle it was. But just how bad? So bad, copywriters from across the nation reveled in giddy glee over the chances to have a headline that read, Howard the Duck lays an egg. And it did. Well, sort of. When it opened in 1,554 theaters on August 1st, the film would gross $5.07 million, the second best opener of the weekend behind the sixth Friday the 13th entry, and above other new movies like the Tom Hanks, Jackie Gleason dramedy Nothing in Common, and the cult film in the making Flight of the Navigator. And $5 million in 1986 was a fairly decent, if unspectacular, opening weekend gross. The Fly was considered a massive success when it opened to $7 million just two weeks later. Short Circuit, which had opened to $5.3 million in May, was also lauded as being a hit right out of the gate. And the reviews for Howard the Duck were pretty lousy. Gene Siskel gave the film only one star, calling it a stupid film with an unlikable lead in the duck, and special effects that were less impressive than a sparkler shoved into a birthday cake. Both Siskel and Ebert would give the film the dreaded two thumbs down on their show. Leonard Mullen called the film hopeless. Today, the film only has a 14% rating on Rotten Tomatoes with 81 reviews. But despite the shellacking the film took, it would be all bad for several of the people involved in the making of the film. Leah Thompson was so worried her career might be over after the opening weekend of the film, she accepted a role in the John Hughes movie, Some Kind of Wonderful, that she had turned down multiple times. As I stated in our March 2021 episode about that movie, it's my favorite of all the John Hughes movies, and it would lead to a happy ending for Thompson as well. Although that film was not a massive success, Thompson and the film's director, Howard Deutsch, would fall in love during the making of the film. They would marry in 1989, have two daughters together, and as of the recording of this episode, they are still happily married. For Tim Robbins, it showed filmmakers that he could handle a leading role in a movie. Within two years, he would be starring alongside Kevin Costner and Susan Strandon and Bull Durham, and his career would soar for the next three decades. And for Ed Gale, his being able to act while in a full-body duck suit would lead him to be cast to play Chucky in the first two Child's Play movies, as well as Bride of Chucky. Years later, Entertainment Weekly would name Howard the Duck as the biggest pop culture failure of all time. Ahead of such turkeys as NBC's wonderfully ridiculous 1979 show Super Train, the infamous 1980 Western Heaven's Gate, Warren Beatty and Dustin Hoffman's Ishtar, and the truly wretched 1978 Bee Gees movie, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. But Howard the Duck, the character, not the movie, would enjoy a renaissance in 2014 when James Gunn included a CG animated version of the character in the post credit sequence for Guardians of the Galaxy. The character would show up again in the Disney animated Guardians television series and in the 2021 Disney Plus anthology series, Marvel's What If. There technically would be one other 1980s movie based on a Marvel character, Mark Goldblatt's version of The Punisher, 
featuring Dolph Lundgren as Frank Castle. It was shot in Australia in 1988 and was supposed to be released by New World Pictures in August of 1989. The company even sent out trailers to theaters that summer to help build awareness for the film. But New World's continued financial issues would put the film on hold until April of 1991, when it was released directly to video by Live Entertainment. In fact, it wouldn't be until the 1998 release of Blade, featuring Wesley Snipes as the titular vampire, that movies based on Marvel comic characters would finally be accepted by movie-going audiences. Blade would soon be followed by Brian Singer's X-Men in 2000 and Sam Raimi's Spider-Man in 2002, the success of both of those prompting Marvel to start putting together the team that would eventually give birth to the Marvel Cinematic Universe we all know and love today. Thank you for joining us. We'll talk again soon when episode 102, the first of two episodes about the 1980 distribution company Vestron Pictures, is released. Remember to visit this episode's page on our website, the80smoviepodcast.com, for extra materials about Howard the Duck and the other movies, both existing and non-existent, that we covered on this episode. The 80s Movie Podcast has been researched, written, narrated, and edited by Edward Havens for idiosyncratic entertainment. Thank you again. Good night. Good night.